Well, welcome everyone. Today I have Doug Tees, who is a certified financial planner with the Jason Howell Company in Virginia. He's both the chief operating officer there and a wealth advisor. So we're going to talk a little bit more about different retirement strategies, both pre and post retirement. So Doug, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Adam. I appreciate it. Well, before we begin, tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what made you decide to go into financial planning. Sure. This is kind of a second or maybe even third career for me, but I've always been fascinated with money, how things work. It's what I read in my free time, but I've always been, or in the past 15 years, been a part of different financial services organizations from banking to mortgage industry. And I had an opportunity in, in 2017 to make a career change, dove in, got my CFP, joined the Jason Howe Company, and have really thoroughly enjoyed my time there advising families on how best to optimize their wealth and kind of meet their own individual goals. Nice. Well, you're you're obviously the expert here. So going through retirement strategies, I think the big question that a lot of people have is how the tax implications come into play. So most people consider there's like three buckets of money that you can do taxable, tax deferred, and then tax free. Can you maybe speak a little bit more in depth to each of those? Sure, sure. So taxable, a lot of people would frame that as just regular investments that you make on your own. So whether it's a brokerage account, or even buying like Bitcoin or other things out there, there's individual investments that you're going to have to pay taxes on the gains in those. So your initial investment is always with your after-tax money, so you can withdraw that without tax implications, but any growth you'll be taxed on. And then there are some nuances in the law. If you earn below a certain amount right now, capital gains taxes are zero. Most people fall into like the 15% range. And then for high income owner earners, you might be bumped up to the 20% area. So those taxable accounts kind of fall in there. There's a lot of creative ways, especially the wealthy can manage those, but that's the taxable bucket. The tax deferred are what a lot of people get through work. It's 401ks or IRAs, which are individual retirement accounts. Um, there's different varieties of those, 403B, if you happen to work for, for state government, things like that. But all of those, essentially, you reduce your taxable income by whatever you contributed in that tax year. So you don't pay taxes on that. The, the full balance gets to go into those accounts and earn and grow. And then when you withdraw it, that is when you pay taxes. And you pay taxes at the income tax rate. So that's the graduated rate that we all pay when we file our, our taxes at the end of the year. So that could range anywhere from 10% all the way up to 37%, depending on how much your total earnings are. And then there's the tax-free. Now, some people call Roth tax-free. You actually pay taxes on Roth accounts, Roth IRAs going in. So that's after-tax money, but those funds then grow and you can be withdrawn tax-free later. So that can be a great tool for balancing things out, whether you choose to pay taxes now or taxes later on some of those retirement. The only what they call triple taxed advantaged account out there right now is the health savings accounts that are a part of a high deductible health plan. And for those, those are really unique in that you get to tax deduction when, when you put the money in. They grow tax deferred, so there's no taxes on any of the growth. And then when you withdraw them, assuming you use them for health-related needs, they are tax-free as well. If you end up withdrawing those funds not for health-related, then it's almost like it's treated like your 401k or 403b. You get taxed on the, the growth and taxed at the income rates. So those are kind of the overview of those three, three buckets. 
the the HSA is a great mention. So when it comes to that, I know a lot of people obviously just use that on a yearly basis. Do you recommend that they almost treat it more like an, a long-term retirement account in a sense, and then they don't use it and build up that amount and then use the expenses later in life for the medical reasons? Yeah, that's the ideal scenario. So if people have enough cash coming in that they can pay for their medical bills, because it does come with that high deductible plan, which means you're on the hook for a lot of expenses. So for folks who can afford um, to pay that out of pocket, we recommend they do that. And most of the health savings accounts have a similar investment option as 401ks. So you can invest in target date funds or sector funds, things like that, where you can actually grow it over time. Certainly that's our preference because, you know, if you can build that over a number of years, you've essentially funded a nice bucket in retirement for when you expect healthcare to raise, be a big expense. Right. Well, you mentioned several of the different investment options. So a lot of people have this concept of financial order of operations in mind. So what do you see as the sequence of investments that people have in terms of emergency funds or retirement accounts or Roth, all the different options? But what sequence do you usually advise on? Sure. So, you know, the first thing, and you'll hear this from a lot of different advisors, is don't leave any money on the table. So if you've got a match through work, we like to at least set the minimum is to contribute to get that match because that's 100% return on whatever you put in. You don't get those guaranteed anywhere. So that's always the first order of business. Now, depending on somebody's situation when it comes to debt and to emergency reserves, that becomes kind of nuanced. But generally, I'm not a big fan of debt, especially not consumer debt. Certainly mortgage and auto and those are fine, but, but really balancing that out and making sure that you're not negative when it comes to that. And we do recommend in our practice a fairly robust emergency fund of cash so that you're not put in a bad situation. But assuming your debt situation is handled and you've got enough to weather a storm, then we would recommend if your income is within the limits where you can contribute to Roth after you get your match, go and fill up your Roth. Because if you are eligible, you're probably in a, a relatively lower income tax bracket. So it's a decent trade-off. We do look at that individually and sometimes make different recommendations, but that's kind of a general rule of thumb. And then typically once people use the Roth, if they have more, go back to that tax deferred and fill up their 401k. And then beyond that, it becomes other investments outside of it. Certainly individuals have different goals. And so some people might choose, hey, no, I'm saving up for a down payment on a home. That's really important to me. So we might say, okay, well, we're not going to fill up those other buckets until you've got kind of your war chest for your house, because that's what's important to you at this time. But if we're looking at purely math and being able to grow and in, uh, investments over time, that would be our general recommendation. Where does the HSA fit in in your order before Roth, but after 401k company match? Yeah, so exactly. 401k company match, then HSA, and then and then Roth. Yep, yep. Got it. I guess for, for my purposes, a lot of people ask me, it's like, oh, should I prepay my mortgage? And you kind of mentioned, kind of alluded to good debt versus bad debt with like the consumer debt obviously being very high. People might view mortgage rates currently as on the higher end, but not nearly the same as credit card debt. Where would you prioritize prepaying mortgages? Yeah, so we do some basic math to say this is kind of what we expect from growth from your investments. This is what we expect you to pay in your mortgage and interest. And so we end up coming out with a mathematical recommendation. That said, there are some people who are like, I want freedom. And freedom to me means 
out from under debt. And we just like to lay out what those options look like from the mathematics perspective and the growth perspective. And then we're happy to flex and move on that. You know, a lot of people have rates that they locked in one and two years ago. And those are hard to recommend people to pay off early. I know of a lot of people who are now earning more interest on some online accounts, FDIC insured and everything. They're earning more than what they're paying in mortgage. And so for those clients who have said, hey, I really feel like paying it off. Well, we're saying just build up the cash. You can pay it off anytime. Keep that cash and earn that additional interest and you can pay that off when you're comfortable. But yeah, it ends up being an individual thing. And certainly I despise consumer debt. I don't love auto debt. Home debt to me is, you know, that's pr probably the only way that a lot of people can get where they want to be. And so that is generally something that we're not as militant on getting that that paid down. When you mentioned when it came to the Roth IRAs, kind of the income threshold that you you had to, well, not a threshold, but a limit that you had to deal with. Do you typically advise in terms of the order, do you go 401k match? And then if they can't do the Roth, does the conversation then go to potentially a backdoor Roth contribution? Or is it going with a more simplistic route of just going back to the 401k and just maxing that as much as you can? Yeah. So m most of our clients are above the threshold and are in the higher tax bracket. So if somebody's in the 24 or below tax bracket, then the backdoor Roth becomes more palatable. Just to take a, a thousand foot view is if you're in the 24% tax bracket working and you're in the 24% tax bracket in retirement, it doesn't matter Roth or otherwise. The math works out the same, whether you get the pre-tax growth or the after-tax growth and no tax afterwards, the math works the same. So really what it ends up being is a play on your assumption about where you'll be in retirement. So most folks assume I'll be in a lower tax bracket in retirement. So most of the time it's tax deferred. Let's put it in and not pay taxes now and even it out. That said, having a bucket of funds that you can withdraw without tax implications later in life gives you a ton of flexibility. So some of it becomes a little bit of a flexibility play to be able to say, hey, I'm 65. I want to buy that fishing boat. I need to take assets out of some of these accounts. If I can take it out of a Roth account, I'm not being raised a tax bracket. I may not have to therefore pay more for my Medicaid, these additional adjustments based on income, things like that. So we look at it as kind of being able to fill out a portfolio of resources that people can draw from later in life. So that's why we like having some Roth funds. But if someone's up above that 24% tax bracket, it becomes a little less appealing because it jumps from 24 to 32. So all of a sudden, you're really betting on, on, on being in a high tax bracket later in life for that to have worked out for you. Perfect. Well, and then any general advice, I guess, for people early stages of you know, way before retirement, any kind of early stage wealth accumulation advice for people? Yeah, it, it is all about compounding, right? I mean, you get your house in order, you're making sure that you're not bleeding out money to the, the banks on consumer debt where you're paying 24% interest on credit cards. So stopping that that kind of negative flow. And then it's really just investing and growing that most of the folks that we talk to who are on the younger side were really aggressive in their allocation. So it had been pre this run-up of interest rates, 
almost like a 90-10, 90% equity, 10% in bonds. And the bonds were really just there as ballast so that when equities dropped, you could actually buy in low. So it's all about that rebalancing. Now we're more at an 80-20 because you actually are getting some yield and some, some income from that bond side. And it's a, a little more hefty ballast as we're in some choppy times. But a lot of it is, you know, the old, don't look. <laughs> let it grow, but maybe set up some rebalancing things where if things move away from your allocation by like 20% or more that you do that rebalance, because then essentially you're always selling at a relative high, whichever asset and buying at a relative low. The analogy is kind of drawing back the bowstring where then when you let it go, it really flies, you know? So when markets bounce back, you've purchased more at a lower buy-in. How does that shift maybe five to 10 years before retirement for you? Yeah. So generally speaking, you want to start taking some chips off the table. Specifically, we really work with our, our clients to understand what do you need when? And we don't want to ever have a conversation. You heard a lot in 2008, oh, they had to delay retirement by five years. I'm like, well, they weren't working <laughs> with somebody who was keeping their eye on the ball because right. ideally you've got in relatively safe instruments what you need over Certainly the next two years and then extend it to the next five, you've got it in instruments that you can really count on five to 10, you're starting to pull back. And then anything we look at anything 10 plus that's you're hitting for the fences, even in retirement, because we see people, if they retire at the traditional 65 or even 70, they've got 20 to 25 years of living and probably 15 to 20 of those are going to be healthy and active. So you want to be able to fund those. You want to be able to have the resources available. At the same time, you, you still want your engine growing and helping make sure that you have resources to last you through your, your lifespan. How does that change for the people that want to hopefully have the ability to retire early before they hit a standard retirement age where you can start pulling money out of their retirement plans? Yeah, you definitely want to build up other assets. So whether it be brokerage accounts, other things where you can pull from those and certainly cash resources, other things. And then a lot of people talk about whether they have investments that are generating cash flow for them. A lot of people like rental houses. I'm not a big fan of those because it takes a lot of work. You have to really want to do that. And you do have obviously some other risks there, but you want sources that will fund your lifestyle regardless of whether you're punching a clock somewhere. So a lot of times that's different ways to build up those assets and some of it's personal preference, but a lot of it needs to be liquid and available and kind of along the same tenets that we just discussed, which is I want to be sure that I have my next couple of years regardless of what happens in markets, regardless of what happens in real estate, all of those things, I want to have that locked in. And then I can take a little bit more risk with things further out because I have some time for stuff to stabilize. So then once you hit retirement, how does that shift the advice? Yeah. In retirement, withdrawal strategies becomes really paramount and even before. So folks who are able to withdraw. So you're able to withdraw from your retirement account starting at 59 and a half. So some people might have scaled back work. We might want to start pulling more aggressively from their retirement accounts, more than what they need to fill up that 24% tax bracket. So that we're pulling it out because after right now it's it, they pushed it to 72, it's going to go to 75. You have required minimum distributions from your retirement accounts. And that sometimes can be the tail that wags the dog. Chunk, if you've built up and amassed a ton in your retirement accounts, 
all of a sudden, the amount that you have to take out may dictate where you are from a tax bracket. So a lot of it becomes you know, very individualistic. But depending on what resources people have, you can start tapping retirement accounts at 59 and a half. Certainly, a lot of folks who we expect to have a long life, we don't recommend them taking their Social Security until 70. Again, that's tailored to individuals. If you have health issues, you may want to pull that all the way forward to early distribution at 62. But for most like healthy folks who we expect to live a long time, we need to bridge some time from when they typically leave employment to when that Social Security money comes in. So that's where it becomes constructive to be able to say, all right, I've got some Roth funds that I can use. I've got the HSA there to handle some of these expenses that normally I would bear with cash flow, but now I can just take and refund myself and fill up my coffers so that I could live and do the things that I'd like to do. Yeah, this is all great advice. Any other final thoughts or advice that you think would be relevant to kind of people on the retirement topic? Yeah, I'm a financial advisor. I feel like obviously I value that very much. So talking with someone, getting someone on your side, our firm is set up to be fiduciary wealth advisors. So we um, only charge for our advice. We don't sell products. Not that selling products is bad. You just want to know how somebody's compensated based on that. So I always recommend getting a second set of eyes on things. I have somebody else do my taxes, even though I'm <laughs> pretty astute on the topic, those kind of things. So getting some professional help is is always advisable. Perfect advice. Well, if anybody would like to learn more about you and your company, what's the best place for them to go look? You can look at jasonhow.com or you can feel free to email me at doug at jasonhow.com. Be happy to talk further. And I'll make sure I include both of those things in the description as well. So certainly reach out. When do you think the ideal time? Obviously earlier rather than later is going to be the general advice, but what, what are the main things that people should look out for? Like, all right, I need to get professional financial advice at this stage. Yeah. You know, you, you hit on it earlier is better. The challenge is the way that a lot of advisors are compensated is based on the wealth that's already been accumulated. So it's hard to get the advice at earlier stages. So certainly when things start to get a little more complicated, a lot of people seek us out ahead of life changes. So ahead of retirement or major job changes, things like that. Those are good times. Starting a family, all of those are good times to get some advice. And certainly if you're going through those, definitely. And if you have a financial planner, <laughs> those would be good times to reach out and make sure you get some additional advice specific to those as well. So absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Doug, this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been great advice. So anything else that you wanted to run through? No, thanks, Adam. I appreciate your time. appreciate the value that you provide to your clients and appreciate having the opportunity to speak to you today. I appreciate that. Well, I certainly wish you the best, Doug. Likewise. All right. Take care. All right.